0: Welcome to the Listen to Your Footsteps podcast. I'm your host, Kojo Buffon, and this podcast is an extension of my book, also called Listen to Your Footsteps, which is a collection of essays, reflections, and poetry on things like fatherhood, identity and belonging, growing up, creativity, and the lessons learned. The purpose of this podcast is to gain insight and learn from the journeys that others have taken. I explore the worlds of art, culture, design, business, creativity, and life. From the perspective of Africans who are contributing to the redefinition of the continent and who we are. My guest in this episode is Ralph Williams III, also known as the rapper Staga Gondada. I chat to him about growing up between the UK and Botswana, identity, for raising into the music industry, fatherhood, and much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation. First of all, thank you
1: for coming on to this. I'm um, agreeing to come on to have a Thanks chat. Thanks
2: for having me. Thanks for having me, brother.
1: So my standard, my standard um, opening question is, what did you want to be when you grow up? Whether you were five years old, 10 years old, as a kid. What was the thing? Is like, okay, when I grew up, this is
2: what I want to be. Um, you know, for me, it changed. I think when I was like, when I was about five, I can't remember what I was, what what it was, but there was a military parade that I saw on TV. I mm-hmm. or six. And I thought it would be kinda of, kinda of cool. You know, when you're a kid and you're playing with the little soldiers with the green plastic soldiers in yeah. the street and stuff, you know? Kids that grew up in the eighties. That's what we used to do, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I think the first thing first thing that I remember wanting to be, and I didn't even really know why, but I just I wanted I think I wanted the power. So I wanted a gun. So I figured let me be a soldier. And I think that kind of faded. And then um yeah, there was a period where you know, my mom being a doctor, every, I mean, from I like could talk, all I heard was, when are you going to be a doctor? When are you going to be a doctor like your mom? I was like, look, I don't want to be a doctor. Okay. I was like, far away from that as possible. So that was like, um, that was around maybe from like five to seven. Because I was like five, I wanted to be a soldier. From like five to seven, I was toying with the idea. But then I think, I remember when I came to SA for the first time, um, from about the age of eight, yeah. I actually wanted to be a freedom fighter. And I remember the reason. I remember the moment as well. Because like, when, you know, like growing up in England and then coming to SA, I mean, I came through when it was young Smuts, yeah. 84. Yeah. With the non, non, you weren't even black, you were non-white. Like, yeah. Like, right? yeah. I didn't even know that I could be a non-entity. I thought <laughs> I was something, you know what I mean? So it wasn't even blacks and whites. It was non-whites. So I was like, wow. Yeah. So I'm coming, I'm coming from England, like, you know, white country. At that time I wasn't even really aware too much of of, of, of race as how we understand it today, you know? Mm. And, and, yeah, you're coming, I remember and you're like coming
1: you're coming in there. And you're coming to South Africa. Like so you're not yes. you're not going you're not the going first to time. You're not going to Luxembourg, no. right? You're not going to, no, 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 to no, no, South
2: exactly. Africa. And then you exactly. get there and there's the white and non white. So so I'm, leaving, so I'm leaving London and I've never I mean, I'd only been to America at that point. Because I've been to America when I was four and six. So this is, I'm now like almost eight. And this is the first time I've been to Africa. So I'm like, wow. Obviously, I had all the indoctrination and in programming that you, that you grow up with here. Hmm. So I remember, and it's funny because I actually still remember this. I remember asking my mom, I said, okay, so where's the plane going to land? And she's like, well, it's going to land in... Africa. i was like no like before we get to africa where's the plane gonna go because i didn't think plane i'm telling you like i thought we were gonna sail in i was gonna come in like you know like some captain of a ship and she's like no we're gonna we're gonna fly into south africa. i was like there got airplanes there she's like yeah and i was like okay so when are we gonna have to catch the food i really thought it was gonna be like tarzan where i'm gonna be in a grass chasing animals catching food so and that's just purely based on what I had seen in mm-hmm. television, like in the eighties. You know, growing up, that they never showed you anything of any kind of apart from disease, death, and war. All I yeah. saw was that Africans were poor, and that that was me coming as a black kid coming from England. So I remember landing, and then I'm, I actually remember flying over the, the houses and mm-hmm. seeing swimming pools. and thinking, wow, this is not bad. You know what I mean? Like this ain't too bad. And then we saw the shacks. Like as the plane was getting lower, I said to my mom. What's that she, she started to explain. So, obviously, you know, I've seen these signs, I've never seen them in my life. And I think by the time we got to because yeah. we went to one of my mom's aunts who lived in Dube, in so it. Hmm. So, my first culture shop. So, I'm coming kind of from South London, from like you know, Crystal Palace, yeah. Hill. you know, white neighbors, white school, private school, you know, landing into apartheid South Africa in the middle. Yeah. I think there was probably even state of emergency at the time. So, I remember. After the first day, I said, okay, how do we change this? And they were like, change what? They're like, ah, yeah, we need to change this. And they were, they were like telling me, oh, you know, blah, 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 the struggle, with this, that. And I was just a kid, but like, I was like, no, nah, you know what? I need to be a freedom fighter. This, this has to change. So I think from, from about that age to maybe till about maybe 15 was when I started to switch up. I wanted to like go into things like architecture and law. But for, for the longest, I just wanted to be a rebel.
1: So I'm fascinated by... I'm fascinated by your background. I mean, so, because also the similarities to mine, just in terms of, it's like navigating cultures, right? And navigating yeah. different backgrounds and finding your space, your space within it. Um, and when we did, because I think we first met properly when we did the British Council thing, I had Zab's on, sure. on the yeah. show as well, and we talked yeah. about that. Like, A um, lot letter. Yeah. And then, you know, having known Stagger Don Dada, and then it's like, you know, yeah. Ralph, Ralph Williams the third, and I'm like, ah. And then there's a, and then there's a like Jamaican <laughs> thing, which which wasn't prominent if somebody it's only interacted with you as the artist, the rapper. Yep. Yeah, yep. Um, How
2: did your parents meet? That's a good question. Um, so my mom is my mom's from Botswana, mm-hmm. born in Botswana, but like her mother was from Ladysmith, so. I have, like, my, my, my full name is Ralph John Sipo Williams. So I, even though is my middle name, it's always the first name that I always use. Mm-hmm. So, like, in England, in Botswana, even even my Jamaican family, they don't call me Ralph, even though I was named after my, my father's father, who was Ralph Williams. Okay. Senior. Yeah. Everybody, like, all my cousins, everybody, they've always called me Sipo. It's weird because, um, yeah, so there's that. Okay, my dad is Jamaican. My mom's Muzana, South African. They met in England in like late 60s. Okay. So my dad was like early, let's say around probably like in their early 20s, early to mid-20s. They were like around that age. And my dad's an artist. He does like uh, modern art. Okay. He worked like other, other like regular corporate jobs before, but like his passion is just in the arts, like all paintings and stuff. So he was in the art scene. She was a medical student. And I think it was, it, was, it was more about the politics of the time that brought them together. Admittedly, my mom's a nerd, you know? I mean, she'll tell you herself. But like, <laughs> so, so she wasn't like, she, like, and my dad is like the complete opposite, you know? He's hanging out with the cool kids. They're all smoking weed, and it's the late 60s. You know, they're, they're listening to like um, Alchemist speeches and Dolomite albums and wearing cheekies and growing their afros and discovering their roots. So they kind of, they met through mutual friends, but it, I think it was more about the, the way that they were politically inclined. Mm. They kind of actually kind of joked. And then, yeah, they, they just, and even that in itself, it's not really that common because like there is kind of like a civil war between West Africans and West Indians. You know, or, or let's say blacks from Africa and blacks from the diaspora. Yeah, It's, it's, silent, it's silent silent, spoken, but it exists. There is, there is that division.
1: How did your father come to come to the UK? I mean, is he is he, he, came, the first, he, is he first generation?
2: Um, he's from the Windrush what they call the. Windrush Is, is he from the Windrush generation? Yeah, yeah, uh, he came in '56, so in like, but mm, well, he was like uh, about five. So my grandparents came in the '50s, okay, to England from Jamaica, and then my mom came right at the end of the '60s to England from Botswana. So she came to study, and they had just come to work because, yeah, um, it, you know after. I'm thinking it must
1: be fascinating just kind of navigating those different aspects. So, I mean, you're in the UK, but also I know a bit about the Windrush generation. And it's only yeah. now that at least it started to get the necessary attention, not just not just within England, but around the world. Uh, what? Yeah. And I mean, I, I recently watched um, Steve McQueen did this series of films, um, yeah. Small X, which was which is rooted it's very rooted in the experiences of black britons i find it fascinating it must have been fascinating just kind of navigating navigating all of those things because also botswana uh, botswana as an african country also there's a particular way a botswana will carry themselves the way they'll see themselves right and you know it's an independent african country so your mother's coming from an independent african country and your father's coming from a generation that, that continued to be oppressed, but nobody acknowledged that that's, all, that's what was happening.
2: Yeah. And, and you got to remember as well, like a lot of people don't realize that there are black people in England. Yeah. And you tell them that, they just think, where? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, every time, I, every time I've been to America, um, that's what always used to happen as well. They'd be shocked that there are black people here. So I think it, it, it took a long time for... And plus, I don't even think really black people have really made that much noise. You know? mm-hmm. like, with, the, with the exception of a few, you know? But like that generation that you're talking about, like um, my grandparents came to Brixton. So Brixton is like the Harlem of London, you know? It's like the black mecca. It's, it's actually where the only place that black people were really allowed to, to live. Mm. because like Brixton, Notting Hill where they have where they had the carnival where they have the carnival now those are the only areas that you know you could actually get a place because when they came in the 60s they would say no blacks, no dogs, no Jews, no Irish yeah. they had those actually you know? so that was the place that, and you know what happens like when a black person moves in white person moves out so yeah. white flight as soon, as soon as they come in it's like oh no here they come the darkies come, <laughs> come on <laughs> let's get our go. let's get out of here and then they just leave you know so Brixton became um, like a black area and that's where that's where like all my family's from that's where I grew up um, like my earliest memories are in Brixton I remember mm-hmm. the first Brixton riot like in I think 81 yeah. 80 or 81 I remember seeing it on television and looking out the window and seeing the sport. and seeing it outside yeah because like we live like where my dad lives is in right in the middle of Brixton so it's like right near the town hall so we're like slap bang in the middle so it was it was nice mm-hmm. it was a good experience as well because and Brixton is like any other low-income area in the world. You know, yeah. It's the same. It, it has the same characteristics, The same characters. You just change the name, but like, <laughs> same people doing same shit. You know what I'm saying? Exactly the
1: same. Yeah, I like the I like the same characters, just different names.
2: Because oh, because I mean, I, you know, like I was, the guys that you. Oh, yeah, okay, like, I was trying yeah.
1: to explain to somebody like I was watching something or something was going on, and I was trying to explain to somebody. I'm like, okay, I didn't grow up in South Africa. I grew up in Masir. But you see that guy? Like, I grew up with guys exactly like that. (laughs) drinking that same (laughs) liquor. Because they were going, yeah, but it doesn't make sense. I'm like, no, like, it makes perfect sense to me. Like, I grew up with that guy. Like, I know that guy. You may speak a different language. You may come from a different cultural background, everything else. But I know that specific guy. And you know, I
2: say that, yeah, I've learned that, especially from being from so many different backgrounds, like, you know, Jamaican culture in England, African culture in Botswana and South Africa, you know, even, even like in terms of, whether I go to family in SA, family in Botswana or family in the UK, I can even identify family members I identify, like there's, there's that one uncle, you know what I mean, who, <laughs> he, he just does it with a Jamaican accent with an English accent, <laughs> you know what I mean, or or or, cousin, yeah. or, or, or just somebody, you know what I mean, or even like, 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 like in terms of, like my dad's friends. They are guys who are exactly the same. Are maybe my cousin's dad's friends or somebody else. You know what I mean? Just identical yeah. characters, just different names. That's all. Because really when you look at it, it's the same obstacles that they face but in just different parts of the world. Mm. So, you know what I mean? That's why they, they tend to be so similar because they're going through the same, whether it's failure to launch, whether you fail to launch in Gabs or you fail to launch in Great Britain, it's the same type of depression that you're going to be asking, mm. you know I mean? How did you
1: navigate identity? Like, because for you, I, I, I think it's slightly different. So mine, mine was also navigating race. Yeah. Because we're in a world that continues to look at, to look at, well, hold race up to the fore, especially in, for example, this country, where, yep. Um, people look at what you look like first before they engage with you. Um, and they tell you what they think you are yeah, based on how yeah. you look. But with you, it's, I mean, okay, it's black people, but it's, it is different cultures. And while there's overlap, there'll also be differences. And, and how, how, do you then, how do you then navigate that process of kind of going, uh, as Sipo, as Stagger, as Ralph, this is who I am. And, and this is the part you know, I'm going to follow, taking into consideration all these different things. Including hip hop, like including yep. hip hop, because yep. hip hop is another factor. Like, if yep. you <laughs> if you're into hip hop in a particular in a particular era, that also forms part of your culture. You know yep. whether you like it or not, whether the Americans like it or not.
2: Right? Yes, I think that's a very good question because you know I'll be I'll be very candid. So I went to a private school called Oakfield in um in London. So I started school there, and that's the only school I knew in the U.K. Now, I was living in what was – Brixton. now, we have a Starbucks. we got white people now, mm-hmm. you know. Back then, we had drug dealers, drug problems, and just – it was just, ghetto. You know, it, was, it was the hood. People were afraid to put So I was living in, essentially, the hood and going to a private school. So, like, I would jump on the bus with my mom, go to school, and there'd be kids literally pulling up their Rolls Royces and Bentley's. Because it was a good school. Mm. But I was coming from the ghetto. So all the kids on my block, none of them went to private school. They all went to like what they call comprehensive and state school. Yeah. So for me, and there was a period where I remember, like, I think I was about six. The only time I've ever wanted to kind of change anything about me. And I remember one time I was, it was after Tron came out. I Remember Trunk? Yeah. Yeah. It was after Tron came out. And I remember, and I think it was just after. Diana, a prince Charles, and Diana as well. And so it was like a year after that. And I remember, um, so my mom tells the story a bit better. But she says, I was watching TV and I was, I was doing this. And she was looking at me thinking, what is this child doing? And then she asked me like, what are you doing? And I was like, no, I'm just, you know, just moving my hair out my face. <laughs> and obviously, I didn't have any hair in my face. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I had a little apple. And she's like, you're she wrong. You know, what's happening with this child? And then and then she said, I said, Mom, um, I want to change my name. And she said, Why? And I said, Because um, I don't, I actually, when I was a kid as well, I thought that when you grew up and you turned 30, you became a prince. I thought everybody became a prince. So I was like, Prince Sipo prince wouldn't work. So I wanted to be <laughs> prince, prince Troy. And she was like, What? <laughs> She's like, and I, I don't know why I thought it was the name Troy, but it, I think it was, I don't know, I was just tripping. But anyway, at that age, I think even at the age of like maybe seven, six, seven, I knew I was black because I looked in the mirror, but mm. I didn't understand that I was black. You know what I mean? All my friends yeah. were white. Yeah. I went to a white school. Um, all my teachers were white. All my neighbors were white. It was only my mom's friend who lived in our building build, because we lived um, in our building like, you know, 71. So she lived like, like maybe two, like a uh, floor below. It was the only other black people. So I really didn't have, apart from my own family, who I still saw every weekend and whatever, yeah. I just didn't have contact with black people. So for a while, I think I was definitely more of a coconut, like very. I was quite, you know, if you can. Still, I don't yeah, yeah, know that's still. I don't even know like, you Yeah, like more, I get, I get it. But you, you know what I mean. Like, I was very, and then it, it actually took for me going to Botswana to then really discover about culture. And then you see, here comes the conflict because even. In terms of being Black African and being Black Caribbean, there's just huge differences. You know what I mean? And understanding all of that, like I kind of understood Caribbean, and I think also like my parents split up. So when they split up, um, if if then like my mom had no contact at all with my dad, or if I had no contact at all with my with my family, like my my uh, my cousins, mm-hmm. um, my grandparents, I, I wouldn't have known anything about the culture. Yeah. But even though they split up, I still had, you know, like, we're, we're like, okay, so we were living in Brixton and we moved to Gypsy Hill. But like my cousin, who's born the same day as me, he's three years younger. He's like my dad's brother's son. He he lived literally walking distance. Okay. So I, I saw him regularly. You know, I still saw my grandparents every weekend. And I still saw my dad as well, even though my parents were split up. So that kind of kept me in touch with it. But then I think when I came to Botswana and I was completely away from it. I, I was only, I would only be, I would only go back like maybe every year, every 18 months or so. Okay. So it would keep me kind of plugged in. But then I had to myself kind of, you know, learn. And I think I had to take that up on myself as well, just to kind of learn. And then at the same time, do you remember when I came to Bhutan, I couldn't speak to each other? Yeah. I
1: but mean, you've me. been taken out of, out yeah. of <laughs> one environment and put smack into one that operates where it's like
2: exactly and you know what the problem is the problem is like when i came from england it was like okay hey, here's this kid so everybody was like okay he's not quote-unquote colored but he has this name like because you know like my first name is ralph so on the school notice yeah. page, we would just say ralph, yeah. Would yeah. It? So it, it, they, they never actually used to write the sequel so everybody used to think there will be a white kid Coming into class, and then I, 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 I jumped in, you know? and it's like they're like, okay, he sounds English. He, we can tell he's a black guy, but why don't you speak Sudanese? So th- then there was that. Why you can't speak Sudanese? And then, you know, trying to trying to make friends with people, and then mm-hmm. like you, you have to, you know, there's a language barrier. So I had to get over quite a lot of things quite quickly, and understand a lot of things quite quickly. But like, yeah, I think, I think. Um, it was difficult and identity wise it took it took like maybe maybe like a year of being in Botswana then I was like okay now I'm fully with this I'm fully with the culture you know I was eating piney you know eating all kind of all you I was beefing it <laughs> I was like head first you know what I mean like let's go let's do this you know but then I think also like it's like opportunity cost. It works you, the more you gain of one thing the more you mm. kind of forget or lose of the other yeah so Slowly, it kind of replaced the, the Englishness, you know, cause I was very, very English when I came. Like, you know, I was the type of kid that I would want, like, um, what's it called? Um, you know, like when you, um, I think, um, we used to call them toy, uh, toy soldiers where you, where you dip, like, um, toast in, like, your boiled egg. Like, I was super English. I was yeah. that English. Like, where, you know, I cut my, my, like, I was, I was that kid, you know. So it, it took a while, but like, yeah, and then, you know, it's funny you mentioned hip-hop because that kind of, that as well was like, um, I think that was one of the things that also kept, culturally kept me plugged into what was happening in the world because you're know, coming off, coming out of the end of the breakdance era, like mid-80s. Hmm. So like 10, 11 is when I discovered hip-hop. And then, yeah, that helped. That kind of helped.
1: So the conversation that Zubs and I had um, was around this because because we all come from kind of a very similar generation and, and it's, and also the countries around South Africa, we have a, we have a shared experience when it comes to things like hip hop, because although although South Africa was totally isolated. I mean, like with us in my school, much having high school, uh, because we had kids from all over the world, we were getting our music from overseas, even though hip hop did not exist within South Africa. Like guys are coming back with tapes. Kids yeah. have parents who are diplomats or you yeah, know yeah. they go overseas. Um, I mean, I used to go to Germany every year to visit, you know, our ship to visit relatives there. So yeah. although we're living, you know, we're living down south, we we were getting this music and and kind of going through that, going through that journey. Which is why I always you know, find that for our generation, like I said in the beginning, like hip-hop is you know, in, in ways that, I guess, in ways that we recognize and don't recognize, it, it kind of became a part of, like a part of who we were. So yeah, you know, if yeah. there's if there's the Setswana culture, if there's Basuta mm-hmm. culture, if there's
2: Jamaican culture, but you add on like hip-hop. I, and you know, it's funny you mentioned that because, I was saying to my son, I mean, my son turned twenty-one like Sunday, and, I, and like you know, he listens to hip-hop music and all that. And I said to him, I said, "You guys are lucky because you know you can wait for a download or you can wait for midnight and get the new such and such. Sometimes we would know that an album dropped four months ago, and, and the tape still hasn't been sent. You know what I mean? Like sure. I remember, like I'd go to the book center in Gabs, Yeah, there's a place called Madonna Book Center. The magazines would be about six months sometimes a year. Like we'd, we'd be looking at Smash Hits magazines. Yeah. Uh not all the ones from England like Smash Hits and all that kind of stuff. And then Word Up and then Yo and then Write On. They would be old. They would be sometimes four they would never be newer than three months out of date. Yeah. So I had, nothing I had a cousin, nothing
1: was Yeah, I had a cousin who used to tape your MTV rap for me, right? Onto yeah, onto yeah. video. Video yeah, And, and, and then you TV get it and then you get it like if you're lucky you get it once a year for Yeah for as <laughs> as, as much as you could put onto one videotape.
2: Oh, this is exactly what I was explaining to my son that like things like UM TV raps, these are things we heard about. We used to wanna see it, but you know, we didn't get it every week. And like mm. it would literally be and then I remember sometimes people in America would send it and then they would have it would be recorded on. The, and then you would need a multi system. Then we have to, so we have the video. Now we gotta find someone with a multi system. It's like come on, dog. This is hard work. We just wanna listen to look at some music and vibe. You know what I mean? But it was hard. Like I, like even for me, I was lucky because I have I have people. You know, like like uh, I was introduced to hip hop by my father because he was a DJ. Mm. My father being you know, an artist, so things like Eric B and Brian came paid him for all those albums I got from him. Uh, the NWA album, uh, things like School D, yeah, Fuji Rap. I used to listen to all of that stuff. because like, what he used to do, he'd put on an album and then paint. He, you know, get the easel out, put the, the, the canvas on the easel, and then he maybe like play America's Most Wanted, and it was all vinyl. Uh,
1: and he'd let that like... and let that that kind of inspire so him be, in terms of his yes, painting.
2: Yes. So that's what he always used to do. So sometimes he would play like a whole album and not paint anything and just sketch. Or he'd just be listening to the music. Then he'd start painting. So mm. I listened. That's how I heard a lot of music. And plus, um, before that, like when, when my parents were still, still together and we were living in Brixton, because he was a DJ, there was records all over the house, like literally. Just records everywhere. So I would listen to music. so It sounds like the message. I heard them play in my house. You know, yeah. Hip-hop was not something that I discovered at school or through a friend. I literally discovered it at home. I was listening to all of that at home. I was, I was heavy into break dance. Um, I used to be pretty good as well, like, and that's kind of like how I got into it. And then from the because I was listening to hip-hop music from the days of like nucleus jam on it.
1: Yeah, know? yeah. Like, I, as, as I but I was actually listening to that recently. Like it's a dope track,
2: (laughs) it is. I mean, like, how can you not? How can you not just, yeah, Yeah, like, there's something wrong with you if you can't, you know? So, things like that, things like Beat Street, you know, Wildstar. I watched all of those things when I was a kid, Mm. and 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 for me, it was, um, and plus, I think for me as well with hip hop music, because you know, like. I think you only realize how white the world is when you get older, because you don't realize. You just think it's just the world, you know. Yeah. Other Christmas, everything being very Eurocentric or West or, or, or Western. Yeah. You don't think that there's, you know even to the point where, where, where when I came to South Africa and we were watching things that were dubbed, like you know, um, remember when they when they had um, what was it like six million dollar man was
1: demand one style style,
2: yeah yeah and like and like they had like basically everything was dubbed so it's like it wasn't even like hey we can shoot our own stories and tell our own stories let's just get somebody to just dub something that comes from somewhere else you know what I mean so that's the kind of level that everything was on and you only realize just how uh, eurocentric everything is until you get a little bit older so for me the hip-hop as well was a way to kind of escape from the world that I lived in that was very hardcore. You know? Mm-hmm. And and plus like you know you mentioned you on TV raps. For me it was about the fashion. Because I, I, I would learn about new sneakers from either watching uh, basketball games or watching rap videos. Or like I don't know if you remember like you remember like um on on the Cosby show even, like
1: yeah. in, in
2: Theo's room. Yeah. you'd usually have Poster, like a public enemy poster or he'd always be wearing fresh sneakers and he'd be always listening to something so i've watched a lot of um american culture for that i've watched i used to watch movies just to see what sneakers people were wearing or watch music videos just because that was my super obsession as well like the sneakers
1: which still, it still and still
2: is hard no? i like the fashion <laughs> as well like and you know what it is i just love them because i think And and part of it was was as well, like like you said, you know, identity. Mm. You're trying to find yourself. You want to be good at something. So I was never really good at sports, and I knew I was never going to be, you know, a super super athlete. But I was good at putting things together. Like I could put clothes together, and I could put outfits together, and I knew that, you know, and I learned this very quickly as well because I was coming from a country where I couldn't speak the language. To to be accepted by kids, you need to be cool. You need to Mm. either be strong. Cool. So unless you can knock everyone out or make everyone laugh, you need to be the guy who people want to hang around. It's either they fear you or they want to hang around you. And if you got cool things, people like you. So I learned that from young that if you have cool toys, if you have cool sneakers, from very very young, I've, I've been rocking sneakers like from very very young.
1: I kind of yeah. you know, I And mean, it's interesting because I mean, when you say that, like I think. Uh, so after high school, I went to Germany, and and I am by and large an introvert. And it's very, it's genuinely uncomfortable for me in new spaces. Although as I've grown older, I I know how to navigate it now, right? Um, But because I was a sprinter and the first thing I did when I landed, literally two days after I landed, I joined an athletics club. Uh, and, And so already I was able to build a small community around myself because we were training five days a week and then, During spring and summer, you're in—you know—you're running every two weeks, so you're—you in a way you're forced to really start to interact with each other because you see each other all the time.
2: Yeah, and and plus, I mean, I'm sure doing that, you had a certain amount of credit and credibility Mm. because you're good at doing something. You know, like I tried—I tried all that shit. I tried the football team, and I had. I had all the sneakers for it. I had all the, I had the kid. I didn't have the skill. Like, I had no football skill. I mean, I wasn't really a sprinter. So, I knew like, shit, I'm not really good at this stuff. And, I knew that as well at school. And that's another thing. I was actually quite small until, like, I didn't start getting tall until I was about 16. So All through primary school, most of high school, I was just a little dude. I was the guy that no one picked. I was good at basketball. Like, I could make a shot. I could shoot. I wasn't told, so I wasn't really effective. You know? Yeah. So I, I, I just wasn't the guy that people picked. And, like, you know, in, in school, if you're not the guy people pick, you get it. Yeah. You, you, you hold no weight. So, you you usually, like, if you're lucky, everybody right. leaves you
1: alone. Like. <laughs>
2: exactly. 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 But now, when you're, I when if you could do something, if you could do something academic, it's sad because they still um, get on the kids who are the smart ones. Yeah, they feel good. Like in terms of in terms of sport, like as a job, you get props in 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 school, in high school and primary school. Mm-hmm. Like people treat you better than everybody else. No one Fs with you, and people actually like respect you. Yeah. So, so and, I I, I yeah. kind of used, I used like the whole, um, I think just sorry to interrupt. I think as a, in a way as well, I was, I wouldn't really say I was an introvert, but there were times when I needed to be in my shell
1: mm-hmm. and. You know, there's,
2: like, I think I got a Walkman when I was about maybe six or seven, like, for a like for birthday. So, from a very, very, very young age. So, before hip-hop, I was listening to music on my own. Yeah. And, like, the albums. And then when hip-hop came, I could spend, like, because I was an only child until I was nine. So, I'd spent lots and lots of hours on my own. And if I wasn't reading or drawing, I was listening to music but, like, on on headphones. I needed that immersive experience. I wanted Mm -hmm. to shut out the world. So I kind of used it as a way to go into, like, a different dimension.
0: Mm Because the hip-hop
2: world is is very different. When you listen to, like... And I say this to people as well. Like, for me, hip-hop was weird. Like, like I said, I started listening to the the breakdown stuff. And then I got into, like, Airbnb and Rakim. And when I started listening to that, I was stuck on that for, like, years. Like, I did not want to move from that kind of you know the rope like I was really into it. the look the rope chains and just the seriousness of it I thought yeah this is cool this is really cool these guys are serious they're not smiling because I haven't listened to like fat boys yeah know? Harvard I'm in the mood and they're always just like smiling and you know it was nice and even run DMC UB Illin it was cool but it was not edgy you know it was hmm. it was not hard enough and for me when Eric B and Rakim came Rakim was 19 I thought this guy looks like I I want to be like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. When I was, I was 10, 11, I was like, I want to be like that guy. Because he, I never seen him smile for like years. I said, yeah, that's the kind of guy I want to be. I don't know if I've
1: seen him smile even now.
2: Man. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think I have. And, and that's what I love. Like, he was just serious. He was so serious. I was like, that's what I want. I want people to listen to me when I'm talking like Rakim. So I liked it. I liked the whole, you know, and then when you move into that, and then, and then I discovered uh, Easy E right after uh, Rakim. Like a friend of mine had, he had the, he actually had a, um, a, um, some video, like we weren't easy. We had it on video. Hmm. And, then, and then somebody sent him the album and we couldn't believe it. Like, wow, what is this? So it's like, you, you discover all these subcultures and new worlds. That's why I liked it.
1: When did you start rapping? Like when did you, when did all of this kind of culminate in, okay, do you know what? Actually, so I'm, going to, I'm going to go and create yeah. music. I, I mean, never so, ever ever. I mean, ever. The, the, like the route I took. I still just love music, and I listen to a lot of music all the time, every day. So yep. you know, the the, close, the closest my you know, the closest my thing is, is kind of call it not necessarily a music critic, but like I'm a music lover of multiple genres. Even when I started writing poetry. I tried to, you know, to write some rap lyrics, but those are the days of to the hip, the hop, the hip, the hip, 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 the hop. Like, the minute we started transitioning out of that, I was like, okay, that's a step too far for me. This
2: is not for me. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny because I never, ever, ever wanted to be a rapper. And it all happened by accident. It was not, it was not part of the plan. I wanted to be a DJ. And um, I started DJing let's say when I was about 13. Like my cousin, so my cousin, my cousin, Julia, He's like my dad's younger brother's son, so he me and him same same born same day, three years apart. Mm-hmm. And he he was a DJ, like but he was into dancehall, like strictly. You got so it. He'd be playing like terror Fabulous, Ninja Man, all that good misogynistic, homophobic eighties dancehall. You know, like the good old we're killing all the men, taking all the women. And that's that, like that kind of real ignorant dancehall. So he, he came up in that era. And then we used to play, he had a little sound. So he kind of taught me like the basics. And then I kind of learned a bit more from another friend of mine called himself, himself Phillips. And he, this is like when I was about maybe, <clears throat> so my cousin taught me when I was about 13. And maybe about 18 when, I've now, when I was now back living in England. When I came back to England. I left Botswana when I was about eight, nine. And then I came back to England not 17, like yeah. to live. So in between, I had been coming for all the days, right? But then I kind of, st- I learned how to DJ when I was about 17, 18. And I wanted to be a DJ. So, you know, that, that was my, that was my uh, thing. I mean, I had never really written a rap. I think I had, but you know, like, even when I started to record what was going to become my album, which originally was just a demo, I had only written one rap in my life. And I'd never been in a studio. And I had this one rap I used to just use over and over and over. You know, like when you have that one nice pair of shoes and you just roll shoes. Yeah, just yeah. That was me and my little one rap. And, like, I had this one little rap. But, like, you know, I DJed even when I was at university. Like, because I, w- I went to uni here. And I was DJing at uni. And I was DJing in Central London. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to be this big DJ. I'm not going to finish. F this degree. You know, I told my mom we're going to make it. I don't need this degree. Bullshit. Of course I was wrong. So I had to go back and finish. But yeah, like I think with rapping, it was just an accident. So Bizarre was the reason why I ended up actually recording an album because so in about 1997, when I was still at uni, we, we tried to call Death Row. So this is just after Tupac died. Not just after, but like few months after Tupac died. So he would call um, the Death Row office. And this is before Google. Still to this day, I don't know how this Negro got the number for that. He had the number. So we would go to his dad's office in Gabs. So, like, basically, when I was in England, okay, so when I've lived in England and when I've lived in Botswana, I've always been going to the other place for holiday. So, like, like okay. every year. So, so, when I came back to live in England, this was like 93. So, from 93 till, let's say, 2003, when I dropped the album. So, every year, I'd, I'd be back now here. I'm no, sorry, in, over okay. there. Like, in So during one of these sessions, um, Bissau was like, Look, I got the death row number. I'm like, How? He's like, I don't even ask. So we used to go to his dad's office, take the key. That day, his dad didn't even know RIP. So we used to just run up the bill, man, like for hours and hours talking to these people. So one day, they were like, Because he called so many times, they were like, Is that Bissau? He's like, Yeah, (laughs) like, in first name basis. We called there, like, I think every day for like maybe three weeks. Every single day, at the same time. And they'd be like, where y'all calling from? We're in Africa. Damn, what time is it? And then, you know, slowly but surely, they're human beings. So you build a rapport with the person. Yeah. They're going to show their human side. And we said, look, you can see that we're serious. Can we just speak to someone? They're like, okay, look, Shug's in jail. Um, but you can speak to Roy. So Roy Testfire was like one of the guys. I can't remember what his actual role was, but his name is Roy Testfire. So we spoke to him for like another week and then he put us on to sharita who was shing wife so we spoke to sharita a couple of times and she said listen so at the time she was managing all the of them she said listen come to death row and come and see us and then we'll talk about your proposal and we didn't have no money yeah. so that's where the dream the dream started so it was like you know when we did that i was like you know what we didn't get to death row but we did manage to speak to Shung's wife and we told her what we wanted to do and they were impressed because we said, look, we've got this concept called Eyes of My People. We, wanna, we think that the only way that we can bridge the gap between Africans and, Africans and, 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 and black people in the diaspora is through music, because music is culture. Mm-hmm. Music is language. Music is spiritual communication. And you know, that's why music is used in rituals. That's why music has been used before, before it became sold and before it became electronic and mass-produced and popular. Music, was, music is used when you learn. Yeah. You know, A, B, C, D, E, F, yeah. G. You cannot, you cannot have life without music, whether it's people being born or people, people dying. So we knew that we'd be able to use music to actually reach over. But we did this in 1997. I still have it, and it was Bissau, and it's even got schizos. I don't even like how the house. We got <laughs> So We wrote this. We wrote this proposal, and we faxed it to them, and they were like, "Yeah, this is great, come They had no money, so this is like. Maybe 97, 97, 98. No, 97. Because it was like a few months after Tupac. So then eventually, um, I fast forward like maybe 2001, four years later now. So Bisar, very persistent character. He manages to secure, this is like he was probably maybe like 25. He managed to secure the first uh, distribution deal for cellular phones in Botswana. So there's a company called Mascom in Botswana, which is Mm. now owned by Air. I know Mascom, yeah. You know Mascom, yeah. So they're like, Mascom was the first cellular company in Botswana. So how he did it, and he started a crazy dude. Um, okay, I probably shouldn't say this, but he used to take the Mascom CEO to like Joburg, to gentlemen's clubs. Okay, I said it. <laughs> and I think he built a rapport with the guy to say, listen, I'm going to do you a dude. Let's, let, you know, let's hang. And like, because he tried to get the deal. They were like, nah, you're too young. You're not going to be able to handle this. You don't know what you're talking about. He's like, look, I can do it. And he actually built like a a rapport with this guy over 18 months. And again, kind of like how he did it with the death row thing. And then eventually they said, okay, cool. We'll give you the deal, but you need a guarantor. So he went back uh, got a guarantor. And then the rest was history because then he became the first mass um, distributor of phones and credit. So if you bought um, a mask on scratch card in the Ghana from 2001 to 2006, you bought it from us. Because the whole country was buying scratch cards from us. So all the all the VMs that you see in the video that that, that I dropped, that, that was bought with scratch card money, and also um, what's it called? We had public phones because at the time there was no cell phone. Yeah. So they they came out they came out with um, you know like the public phones that have uh, uh, like the car battery the but, mobile. Ones? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They we used to call them adondos. I don't know what they call them in um, in essay, in, in but but basically you used to come in, br- pull out your one ruler, make your phone call, and then you go. So those M3s, those X5s, those are bought one dealer at a time. Like literally, the money came in a buck at a time. It came in like waterfalls. Like, you know, it came in hundreds and thousands and millions at a go, but it was literally one buck at a time that we did. Mm-hmm. So, so when, when, we, when, when he did that, he's like, look, remember when we tried to call Death Row we didn't have the money? I said, yeah, he said, we got the money now. And I was in Atlanta. So I had now, I graduated from... Uh, university, doing politics and e- economics, I wasn't the big superstar DJ I was going to become. And I just resigned myself to the fact that I was going to basically now use my degree. So I, I did an internship for this company in uh, Atlanta. And I was like, I was literally like a house husband Cause like, um, my ex-wife was, was, she was finishing her degree. I was changing nappies and, you know, just babysitting my son and trying to get a job. And I remember, I'll never forget, Michelle called me and he was like, he was at this place called Cafe Quest in Gabs. And it was, it was jamming, it was bumping. And I could tell he was having a great time. And I think it was a Thursday night. And then he said, Nigga, what are you doing? I bet you're changing nappies right now. <laughs> and I was literally, I literally had the phone. On my, I was like, this. Yeah. And I had the damn nappy and I thought, what? Wow. And I was changing the nappy. And he goes, Come, come now. And I was like, listen. Like I send you a ticket, I was like, if you're serious, I'll buy a ticket. And he said, okay, cool. So I bought a ticket the next day. He he came and picked me up on a brand new N3, and I was like, okay, you nigga know, was not joking. There's money now because before, you know, we were borrowing our parents' cars and hand-me-down cars, and yeah. you know what I mean. So I was like, okay, there's money. Let's do this. So he was like, and literally, he literally put this all together because he was like, I was like, why are you doing this? He's like, you know, I've never heard you rap. I was like, I know. I know you haven't, so I'm wondering why you keep beating me over this you can rap thing. He's like, because I know you can rap. And we're gonna put out an album. So he literally went and got everybody. So Ruthie's, why I met them through Bizar. Okay. Um, and before we before we did the album, we went to like we went to do because there was no there was no South African hip hop at the time. Yeah, It was just, no, no, it, was just, it, was just it was just Ready yeah. D, P.O.C. and a couple of guys rapping. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was, I think I think at the time only groups that were out was Squatter. Squatter was like, that was when Squatter was still doing their Wu-Tang impression. But they were still mm. basically just Wu-Tang yeah, in Joker. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, before they became like the Umo, because you know like when they did Umo, yeah, that's when they were like, okay, it's serious now. They like, have their own
1: I remember them coming to poetry sessions and getting on the mic and, you know, like, uh, like, label, um, sugar smacks, like coming through to, and getting up on the stage and doing like some rhymes at a poetry, at a poetry open mic because they, all you do is you put your name on the list and they'll okay. let you stand on the mic. I
2: think, I think, I think it was just them. And I just look, the only groups I really knew at that time, it was only them, you know, and like in terms of solos, the only person who was out was Amu. Yeah. Proverb had just dropped, maybe one thing. Mister Selvin was out. Um, those were the only people that I knew who were out. So we, you know, I, like there was no, there was no hip hop producer to go to to get a hip hop beat. Yeah. So we didn't. You know what I mean? So we went to, I, and I didn't even really like the so-called hip hop beat. I didn't want something which sounded like some, you know, um, some, some, some wannabe New York um, Wu Tang shit. Yeah. I wanted something which Different. So, I actually, yeah, I've always been into like, I've always been into, you know, South African pop um, music like bubblegum, stimmella, all that type of stuff. No, I mean, not the stimulus bubblegum, but I mean like the South African 80s. Yeah, yeah I and mean, then
1: like the huh? Kids today don't even know no, that, that. Rebe- that Rebecca Malope used to do bubblegum. Oh, that is right? exactly. um, she Thank She's gospel now for most people, I know. right?
2: I know. I, I like her from Michelle Rose to Pain days. You know, that yeah. Rebecca. You know, with, <laughs> <laughs> that Rebecca. Like, 87 Rebecca. That's the Rebecca I like. Yeah. Like, you know, all that kind of... What's that other one? Um, We had that song, Axis Amanty. Uh, and C.P. Uh, uh, all that type of music and then teaser, Patricia, like, Patricia uh, and uh, so uh, yeah see all that type of music with teaser, with Peter Tennant. I used to listen to all of that and like you know because I've always listened to a lot of different types of music so what yeah. I wanted to do originally I wanted to sample all of those songs and then make my album out of those samples so mm-hmm. whether it's a teaser sample or, or a female sample and I remember like um, so, like I said, he introduced me because we went to we went to like Do we went to Arthur we went to all the different people who were popping at the time. We went to Galawa first. So we had I've had I know Skido since I was like twenty one, so we had a relationship. Mm.
1: With, and Skizo also with had a, a very good relationship with Galawa. Of course.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Skizo is the reason how we had a proper relationship with Galawa because obviously you know and like Skizo is very important. I haven't actually mentioned him, but he He was very important because he's the first person from Bhutan who actually had a deal anywhere you know? mm. so like when when I was in high school, I think if I'm not mistaken, schizo had like a very short lived deal in the u s but he had some he had some um he had some international major label deal energy, and he was the first person I'd ever heard of from anywhere near here who made any kind of roads in America. Because Schizo was at Howard the same year as Puffy, you know because he went to Howard mm. so he had he had that, you know what I mean? Like he had that. But when he came back from America, he was like a superstar in bogota like He was the first celebrity in bogota so Why not? Even even I talk to all the time. The only celebrities in bogota is the president. There's no such thing as celebrity in bogota Everybody yeah. knows each other. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Even if you're famous, there's still somebody who probably beat you up when you're <laughs> yeah, you were in a You know what I mean? <laughs> so you can't like you can't flex. You can even come with money and fame. It just doesn't work. Cause it's like ah, so people. You know, like, okay, you take the shades <laughs> off from the club, that's a thing, you know what I mean? It just doesn't work. You can't like like <laughs> Yeah, that. no doubt. Skizo Schizo was like a genuine celebrity. He's coming from America. Then, you know, not long after that he he grew up in, in in SA, you know, like doing his thing. So yeah, he was um schizo was quite influential, but basically we saw and we actually went to Schizo first, like before we actually came to Joba, I did a demo at Schizo, like two thousand. Uh, I think everybody in Botswana, out like of being a Botswana artist, you, you need a Schizo demo. Like, all, all of them. Me, Zeus, Scar, everybody has one. Like, we went to the school of Schizo, and Schizo actually gave me the most valuable information or advice. Two people gave me very valuable advice in the music. Schizo was one of them, and Boogalove was the second. Uh, actually, many people have, but two things have stuck out. Mm. Um, i start with Booga. Booga, I remember, like, when I got into the music, he was like, just don't do drugs. That's the first thing he said to me. He, he said, I'm getting out of this shit. I'm going to quit this shit. I'm like, are you crazy? Like, you know what's happening in the boardroom? We got girls in there. We got all kinds of stuff in there. We're having some fun. He's like, no, 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 no. And he said to me, he said, whatever you do, I see that you're just new in this and you're really excited. Do not go down this rabbit hole because you will, it would be very difficult for you to throw your way back out. And I didn't understand what he meant until I was down the rabbit hole myself. Yeah. I was like, Damn, Whoever did say to me though, like he did, but like Schizo said to me, he said, first time I ever lost a rap, and he's like, okay, come to my house. So this is around the time when me and Bisau were calling Death um, Row, like '97, like end of '97, and because I'm just kind of jumping back and forth, but I did this rap, so I thought it was the greatest rap in the world, and it was pretty good, like it flowed really well. The, the, the rap that I told you, the, the one rap that the I one had, rap, used, yeah. the one rap. And he said yeah I'm doing that. that's okay but um what's the hook I'm like huh like what's the hook I'm like what do you mean what's the hook we're gonna get a chick to sing it he goes listen no one remembers all that tepe 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 in your verse he goes when you listen to a song for the first time you don't remember all that tepe 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 people remember the hook that's why it's called the hook so I'm trying I go and write a hook I'm like fuck this nigga man I just dropped him some bars. he's telling yeah. me about it. He's an old man. I, was, it's, I think, and I remember saying, thinking, doesn't he know we're just gonna find some chick to sing the hook? But then it's only afterwards that I realized what he was saying. He was like, Look, then I thought about what he said. I thought, But the nigga does have a point. Like, when you listen to a song, you don't remember the whole verse. You remember whether the verse touched you or not. But you don't remember any of the words. You really yeah. remember the flow. You do remember the hook. And he said, That's why it's called the hook. You need to start with the hook first. And I used that formula. Or, or writing songs after that. And I never, ever, ever, like, I, because what I used to do, I used to think I could write a rhyme and go into the studio and make it fit the track. And that's actually not how you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to listen to the music and then come up with something that fits the melody, or at least your syncopation has to be, you know what I mean, in tune. Yeah, Sometimes when you yeah. listen to the songs, you can tell that this person is using a rhyme that was not written for the song. It's like trying to put on a, a tailored suit that wasn't measured for you you know what I mean it's not gonna fit so I, I kind of realized that he was saying that the hook and the hook is the most important and like yeah I thought it was ironic that I just thought he was a shit <laughs> yeah it was definitely one of the best pieces of advice I'd ever been given but, yeah, so we we eventually ended up working with Ryan Goofy That was like that on its own deserves a, a movie yeah, just yeah, a, yeah a movie uh, on its own well bro.
1: each one of them de- deserves their own dark and movie but yeah. my
2: bro like <laughs> I, and, and I, I, I'm actually working on that as a sideline but like that in itself was just one hell of an experience and you know like I said I, I did for them the one rap that I had the rap that I did for Steve the rap that I used to bust at all, all the time with TV, I, I rapped for Zway and Goofy and they're like yo that's actually pretty good um let's let's record it I was like, okay. And then I remember so 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 like so this is like Bishop had brought me to, to find them. And like this is this is after he said to me, you know, are you changing diapers? And I said, yes. Yeah. So I jumped on a plane a week later. He comes and picks me up from the airport, brand new M three. A few days later we're in Joburg. So this is like Christmas twenty twenty one. two thousand and one, December. Um and yeah, I met I met these dudes. I think I came I come. It was either over Christmas or over that festive period. And yeah, there were some wild boys at the time. I mean, they're still like, I mean, they're, they're not as wild anymore, but like, yeah, they were wild. You know, it took about three days just, just for us to find them. We were like, okay, we're in Joba. And he appeared three days later. Like, yeah. Like, we had to blow, like, you see, like, <laughs> <laughs> three days later in a cloud of smoke. And imagine, we had to, we had to go the house for three days waiting for him. It's like, yeah, yeah, I'm coming. I'm like, God, are you guys ever going to come? Yeah. And like, you know, yeah, I started recording. And even that, like, I hadn't told him, like, like before, because we, we were doing all this stuff at his at his studio in his house, in Morningside. So mm-hmm. this is, is, a, is, is, is a place in Morningside now. I never told the man that I'd never been in the studio in my life. So when we started to record, he was like, "How not you practiced this? I'm like, I didn't know. I had to tell him. I was like, "Look, you no. Know, I've never been in the studio, bruh. Like, breath control, I don't even know what you're talking about. I, I, you know, I didn't know anything about punching in or dropping it, and he had to literally drop me in almost, like, word by word. Mm-hmm. And, like, that was, like, the song that we did. And then by the time that we recorded, like, um, the rest of it, I was doing one take. And I was, like, because I developed as I was doing you got it. Because I've literally never, never, never been in the school.
0: You are listening to the Listen to Your Footsteps podcast a podcast in which I chat to Africans from across section of society and sectors, including art, culture, design, business, and creativity, to name a few. I delve into their journeys, the decisions they've taken to get to where they are, how they do what they do, and everything in between. Essentially, we go wherever the conversation takes us.
1: Do you see yourself, I know I'm kind of jumping also, but do you see yourself as an artist? Um, because, because, I mean, you, you came out, right? and. How many albums did you release? Was it two?
2: I'd say one officially. Okay. Cause so the second you... one, I, I, I put it out like as a, as, a, as a promo. I didn't put it out on Sony. Okay. On Sony, I put out one. So you come out with
1: one album. Um, we then hear about this rapper called Stagger Don Dada from Botswana, and then it feels like you go back to you now go to the back to the UK and kind of like disappear or just kind of drop in your career <laughs> and, yeah. and, and you, you know the and like you're saying earlier like as we get older we start to realize certain things right so when you're younger you view for many it's like we view having released an album being in tv being on radio as the pinnacle right yeah um and then all of a sudden like all you're doing is just repeating like repeating and rinsing i mean it's the we also come from an era where it's not like the case today where a Danny Glover will be a conceptual rapper, a series writer, an actor, director, like all of these things all at the same time. And it's all right. Like it makes yeah. perfect sense. Why did you then go back? And what did you do once you disappeared from at least our view? Where others would, others would be like, yeah, Stagger fell off, right?
2: Because no, you know like, what it is. And, and like you know I, I, um, I was one of those people really. if I didn't see a person I would say the same thing um, you know it's almost like um, kind of like when I when I met Zwei because like obviously I've got listen to TKZ you know so when I met Zwei this is like 2001 this is two years after it's almost like three years after the TKZ family album mm-hmm. so they were at the tail, the tail end of the TKZ yeah. experience no, it was it was basically dying, and for me it's two things. Number one, I got into music really late. Like I I, I recorded in 2002, and we put the music out because remember it was all independent. So we put it out on Creative Kingdom first in 2003 in June. That's for the official release date, June 2003. Fresh actually started playing it in May of. Um, 2003 and because we were we were like we gave him the stuff like December 2002 and we were like don't play it and like you know Fresh is our boy we're full of Fresh yeah. um, from Botswana we know him very well and he just said listen you guys are wasting time I'm playing this shit man. and he just he just started to play it because like we were like nah wait and he's like nope I'm not waiting no more so he started playing role with me that's my favorite song and that's the song that Rookie produced We well, produced three tracks before. but when he did that as soon as Fresh started playing a role with me, my phone started to ring. Like, from that, from that day that he played it on his show, I, I started getting bookings. And I had, I had been booked before, like, I was getting bookings before I, I even was on radio, because I was, I'm, I was managed by Sipo Damini, who's now CEO of Universal.
1: Yeah, I know Sipo.
2: Yeah, you know Sipo, yeah. And he actually co-produced half of the EP. So half of it was produced by Zoya and half of it was produced by Sipo and a guy called Mike, and the channel from Cape Town. And there's a couple of things. Number one, it was all independent, so we did everything. We paid for all of that: the video, the cars, music. It was not like no one gave us a check and said, "Hey, go and do this." We did that ourselves. We r'd it. We we chose everything. Mm-hmm. So what you see, what you see and what you hear, is our like nobody said, "Hey, okay." We had internal arguments because like. I'm coming from England where, I, I, you know, I, I was wearing, like, you know, Versace, Dolce & Gabbana. Niggas is wearing fugu. And,
0: yeah. like, you
2: know, I'm, I'm all down for supporting for support black business, but I don't, I'm never, I was never into fugu, none of that shit. I was like, listen, you guys stay there with your fugu. I don't black power and all the rest of it. My shit's Italian, I'm sorry. I'm from England. I'm Euro fit. I'm not wearing this baggy bullshit that you guys are wearing. You look crazy. I'm not going to wear none of that shit. So we had arguments about that, about my image. There was big arguments about that, and they were like, "Okay, at least look a bit more athletic." So that's why I came up with the headbands and mm. action stuff. Anybody who knows me knows I never, I never wore a headband in my life. You know what I mean? Like, what for? <laughs> I'm not an no athlete. I'm not running anywhere. I'm not, yeah. I never joined the gym. You know what I mean? <laughs> they had me in headbands and shit. <laughs> so I, I actually wanted to wear my straight pants, here, like, because that's who that's who I am. You yeah. were like, nah no one will understand it here. I'm like, look, no one has ever understood it here. Because so people used to disagree for that. Like, because I was wearing Moschino in the mid-90s and they were, when they were calling it Moschino, like, why are you wearing tight shit? I'm like, because I like it. You know what I mean? Nah, wear baggy shit. I'm like, no. So i I used to I used to dress like that when I used to sit down. So that that was the only thing that we thought about. But in terms of how you saw me and what you heard, that was all, none of that was controlled by any of the yeah. label or powers that be. So, what else? And this is the thing which I didn't like. So we spent like a lot of money on that. Like, it cost about maybe, the video cost 200 grand. Uh, the album cost maybe another 200. So we were almost up to half a million in, 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 in the in, early in the 2000s. Yeah. yeah, you know what I mean? Still the only video, still the only rapper in Africa to rap in a helicopter. Uh, nobody's ever done that. I was actually, the, if you're being honest, I was the original North God. And I know some people are going to be touched <laughs> by me saying that. Because no one in Santa have money. I was the only nigga with money in Santa. I was the only rapper in, let's say, the brand Park. after I said three BNs before I even dropped the album. It's like, I, I, I saw the people who had money on the scene and I saw who didn't. There was no money in rap music. I was on bills with quite the artists. You know what mm. I mean? The only people who had money were quite, I actually hung out with that artists. I hung out with guys like Mendoza, guys like Brown, all those quite the niggas. Even even Marulis, that was like one of my highlights. Like when I got to smoke some cheese in Marulis, I was like, okay, this is it. I can leave. My I'm done now. Dude, man. Two <laughs> was my jam. Listen. Uh, like I was, I, I told him, and like, you know, I was speaking that supermodel C English and he was just like, yeah, just pass the day, man. And I was just telling him how much I used to pump his shit in England. And he was just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, like, that's that, that's that. That's good. That, that, that. So I kind of saw a couple of things at that time, which for me, I was like, so it's, like I said, it took a while just to put it out because we were doing it independently. You know? So it came out in June 2003. We got a national release in, in April of 2004. This is after we shot the video because hmm. I recorded it in two thousand and two, end of 2002. We shot the video in December and No, November, December 2003. So the music had not been put out. No week. So I sat on that, what became the album, for a whole year. just playing it. It's fucking sanding. Driving around, meeting different people, people telling me how great it was, but like, hey, when is this thing going to come out? And it actually started to get bootlegged heavily on the street. And, um, ex Malcolm X. You know Malcolm? Yeah, well, I don't know him personally, but I know of him. Yeah, so he he actually came to Motwana. And he only told me this later that I said, why did you come to Motwana to try to sign me? He came to try and sign me for EMI. He said, EMI wanted to sign you because Malcolm had heard. In a combi, I had a song on my on my first CD called Be Black. Like me personally, I wanted to make the whole thing militant and just talking a whole lot of militant shit. And they were like, "Listen, you cannot be coming out wearing tight jeans, talking about militant shit. No one's <laughs> gonna buy that shit. Okay, you can't come in here dressed in Italian designer shit, talking on some pro black It's not. It's not gonna work. So they said, okay. So I, I recorded like a, a few, and they let me put one on the EP. But he heard that song, song called Be Black. He said he heard it in a combi. And he stopped the guy and he said, who is this? And he said, oh, it's some guy. Apparently he's from Bajana, but it was a bootleg of it, just like mm. a bird copy of it. It was being burnt like basically from December 2002 to 2003 June when we dropped it. The, 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 the album without basically the version of the album, which basically was missing one track was being heavily bootlegged. So Malcolm okay. actually came to, to Bojana to try and meet us. And I remember I was at Sarah and some guy called and he's like, yo, be sorry. So there's a guy called Malcolm who wants to talk to you. He's like, Malcolm who? We thought it was Malcolm from the tunnel, but we know a guy called Malcolm. He's like, he says his name is Malcolm X. I'm like, man, tell that nigga to fuck off. He actually said that. And he's like, no, no, he wants to talk to him. Like, tell him to fuck off. He said he's come from Job. he like, we don't give a fuck. Off. I said, look, I don't care if he's come from from the grave. you tell him to fuck off. I was like, who calls himself Malcolm X? Yeah. And expects like to be taken seriously. So we found out years later that he actually had been come and been sent by him to try and sign me. And um. Eventually, we didn't sign with EMI. We talked to them, talked to everybody. Um, When we shot the video, all the people who had dissed us, like Gallo, Sony, EMI, they didn't actually diss us. They were just like, eh, eh, we're not sure what we can do with it. They were like, look, this is great. We've never marketed hip-hop before. You sound very international. We don't really know what to do with it. So we're just going to have to wait and see. Yeah, we're interested. So we dropped the video. and No, actually, we shot the video. And when I first started to play it, they were like, "Okay, let's talk, and then, yeah, you know what record labels, was once you've done most of the work, they give you the deal We got the, we got we got like um it was like creative Kingdom got like a distribution deal, so I eventually became um I'd say I, I was a Sony artist'cause like I would go on the Sony promo tours, you know, they treated me like a Sony artist, so that was kind of like um, yeah, it was like so my experience with the major was I didn't really enjoy it because there was a lot of restrictions being on a major label and in terms of what you could and couldn't do and what you could and couldn't say. So for me, I think I was a little bit jaded by the fact that it took us from recording in September 2002 to releasing it in April 2004. And I was like, you know, it took a while. And like, by that time, I was now, in 2002, I was going to be like, I was 26. So most people, when they drop their first album, uh, before the, you know, 26 is like, I think only Jay-Z and DMX drop albums at like that age. And, and like, even Eminem, like, it's very, it's very late you drop yeah. your first album. Like, usually, in hip-hop, you would have been on an album, maybe one or two albums before you drop And then, you know, you drop your album 21. You know what I mean? And that's old. Most people drop between the age, I mean, Rakim was 18. Most of the people that drop, even that we know, that we listen to, Around the age of eighteen, nineteen, twenty, 19, 20. The Della Soul, they were all about 19, 20 when they dropped their first stuff. And that, that's the age when you are fearless in terms of creativity. Mm. So, I just thought, wow, I'm, I'm a little old now. You know, because like, and then the album came out, and then when, when the music, when the song, when the song started to blow up, and I was getting all these airplay and shows and everything, we're now into 2003, so I'm like 27 years old. So, when you're 27 and you're going to do school, and you've got 16 year olds screaming. It's like, I couldn't you know what I mean? Like,
1: yeah. And, and, you, have, and you have a child, right? Like, you're not exactly. You're not just I, a, I like was you're, married.
2: I was married. You're married exactly.
1: with a child like, out in
2: the world. I was married with a kid. So like, I'm, I'm like married with a kid. Um, most of the people who were trying to get into music at that time were wilding out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So for me, I was like, look, in three years' time, I'm going to be sick. If I have to wait for another album cycle, because I kind of said, okay, I'll I'll probably try and put out two or three albums, and then that's it. My plan was always to make money from music and get into property. So I knew that I had to do that before I turned thirty. So I did not want to be telling people to throw their hands in the air when I was thirty-five years old, trying to, you know what I mean? I didn't want to be up and coming at thirty-five. I was like, okay, I need a hit song. If I get a hit, I'm out. And then luckily. Second like single was, was a hit. It was like a mega hit. I was like, okay, maybe I don't have to wait till the next one. You know? Because and then and then so that's that's part of the reason. Partly because of, number one, I was old, and I was a lot older. Like and then all the people that I was um, now going to be rapping against or my contemporaries, you know, they were all like in their early twenties. Some of them were in their teens. You know what I mean? And like like I said, like if I'm if I'm going to be even in terms of university. 27, like you're too old to be at a university, you know what I mean? Like when you're 30 years old, you should not be looking for girls such as precious You shouldn't be <laughs> in university. you know what I mean? Because like, we were, like when, we were, when we were like when I was coming up in the South, we were like we would go to Tech in like the 90s, so, like it was like 95, '96. So I'm like 19, you know what I mean? So yes, I could go to Tech at the age of 19, 20, 21. When you're over 25, what are you doing? doing yeah. to into university? university, You know, that's, 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 that's pedo shit. And like, you definitely cannot be in your twenties entertaining. Cause all the people, the only people who scream at the shows kids. Grown mm-hmm. women don't scream. They, you know, they scream <laughs> from the back. They're not gonna come to the front and scream from the front. <laughs> the people screaming from the front are kids. Let's face it. You have yeah. to be like between, um, high school and just starting college. Nobody doing a PhD is at the front of any concert screaming for anybody. Okay? No one. And no one in their third year is screaming for anybody either. It's only people in the first year and the second year. So I was conscious of the fact that, look, I may look young, but nah, this is not going to work for me. And then another major blow was that Bishara obviously went to prison. Um, so that's another, like, like I said, that leaves a documentary on its own, because like... <laughs> So Vissar obviously is the guy who was my executive producer. He put all the money up. He gave me the the, the the fuel and the fire. He not only gave me the fuel, he lit mm-hmm. the flame as well. He didn't just say, "Hey, here's the fuel." He lit that motherfucking fuel. And he didn't even light it with a lighter. He he did it old school, like with the with the rubbing with the. It took him years rubbing the. Like, <laughs> yeah. hey, I'm gonna get you lit, and he did, you know. So when he he went to he went to jail for like attempted murder, and I thought that's another thing. Like when we were recording. this, Whole time I was like, this guy might go to jail for twelve years. What's gonna happen if he gets uh, guilty? But I know he's gonna get found guilty. And you know, he had an attempted murder charge, and um, it was like, you know what? If this guy goes to jail. What am I gonna do? And I remember like a couple of people, a couple of the labels and stuff were like, okay, look, they you know they made offers, but like, and I don't really want to go into that, but like, I just felt like it, it would be disloyal. if I kind of. Left what we were doing because he's the guy who put me on. Yeah, and I thought if I can't do it with him, then I'm not going to do it. And then, yeah, he he ended up like around September of 2004. He he caught caught a charge, but right? he didn't get like a heavy sentence. But him, you know, him going to prison and that it kind of messed up the trajectory yeah. and the momentum that we had. So we we made some very good momentum because remember, like I, like I said, it was all independent. So we did a lot like. Or just two, two
1: guys with a, with a dream or So is that how? I mean, so it was, those are the things that kind of, I guess, not necessarily drove you but prompted you to make the decision to go I back, to, to, the, to, go back to the UK and and, and, and just kind of do one, something else.
2: And the biggest one, which which um, I have to talk about, the elephant in the room, is drugs, because I was getting a lot of money. I was actually, I was getting a lot. More money in um, telecommunications. Because when I was doing telecommunications, like, when we were doing phones, like, you know, 20 grand a week was just normal. And this is like early 2000. At that time, I mean, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. And 20,000 Pula. One Pula was like almost two rand. So like, 20,000 Pula, like, you know, 40, 40, 50 grand a month, 80 grand a month. The things that I had seen, and I was at that time I was still living in my mom's house. I don't even even see me. Like, there was, was just money everywhere. Like, it was a, we were making fast money, and it was like drug money. But the music, the, the money from music was was nowhere near. So, you know, it, it was comfortable, but like it wasn't near. And like to be mm-hmm. honest with you, the money that I was making from music was shows, and I was good because you know I was getting booked. Um, I think I probably was the first um, rap song to get heavy rotation on five. Like, as far as I know, there was nobody else locally would get heavy rotation. I mean, I was definitely the first English um, local rapper to get heavy rotation on Trombo N. And they even told me, they said, listen, you want know, play this music, but this song is banging. You know what I mean? Like, And that was the weird thing. Like, it, it was not Mutsuako. It was all in English. Mm. But it got played a lot on stations like Trumbo NN and N. Um stations that didn't really play a lot of you know, that type of rap music. Yeah. So I, I, gigs for days. I mean I've gigged in Saldana Bay. You know what I mean? Like I've gigged all over South Africa. There's no part of South Africa I haven't had a had a gig and I was getting gigs in. Remember even the first time I, I, I did a gig outside of say I did a gig in Namibia. And you know, even that I was shocked. I was like, You guys are gonna pay me that much? I've never been to Namibia in my life you, me and, 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 and Zwai, and you know, I was like, Yeah, this is great. And I might as well even just tell this. I remember, like, I'm on the plane first time. So, this woman, the stewardess says, Hey, excuse me, sir. I was like, Me, Zwai, Bissau, our shades on, feeling like a man. I'm, I'm gonna do my first gig outside of me. I'm like, Okay, I've arrived now. And she's like, Oh, um, that, that young lady with like your autograph. Get in. I haven't even dropped a video and I'm being recognized. This is great, because I, I think up until that point, I just went um, drums and like love and just the local media. I'm like, this is it. I made it. First autograph signing on a plane. Come on, man. There's private debt in a couple of years. What? And then, so the girl comes over. She's like, oh, hey, hey. She's up this is Mr. she was all excited. She's like, oh, my God. I can't believe. Um. And this is like when I was still in my headband ahead. Oh, I can't believe i I can't believe it's you. Da, 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 da. So she's talking and she's like, "So when is the album dropping?" I'm like, "Yes, this album's gonna do numbers." They're even asking, he?" And then she says, "Yeah, you know." And then she started talking about Candy and Appleseed. I'm like, "Appleseed, Candy <laughs> <laughs> so like what are you talking about?" And then she's like, "Yeah, you know, I just love you." And she's like, "Oh, please give my regards to Speedy. I'm like, "And at the time, I lived opposite." It's Sunny Hill. But
1: she thought you were stone.
2: I'm like and I said to why I said so <laughs> <sighs> I just said, hey, this let's stone. Nobody knows who's Stucker right now. <laughs> but they will soon <laughs> Bro I, I actually wrote the S and the T and I paused. I had to do it. And I just put O A N First photograph I signed, I signed it as stone. It was like that was like one of my and that was like one of the moments like you no know, that that's of why you like it, because mm. you want that recognition. But then, to be hundred percent honest, there was a lot of drugs in the music game, and I was always like very anti-hard um, drugs, you know? like from um, from England. And you know, I mean, I smoked and I smoked even up, up until up until that point. But then, you know, you you experiment, you hang. You know, when you hang out in new places. You hang out in new spaces, you adapt, you start doing new things. Yeah. And that's the only, that's the only downside thing. You, 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 you acquire new circles. New circles means new people. New people means new pastimes. That means new habits. So things that you initially frowned upon, you see them and you're like, damn, okay, well, he, he's got his car. He seems to be, and you don't know how many months behind on their payment, yeah. Know what I mean? Yeah, you know what I mean. You're like, I just dropped him at his crib, and you know, it looks okay. And you don't know that the guy hasn't paid his one dinner, the guy with the car hasn't paid his car. Like, sheriff is looking for that car, you know what I mean. And I think it's 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 so easy. Well, it was for me anyway, kind of. Yeah, I didn't, and that's the thing, I didn't get super caught up, but I did get caught up a little bit. No. The whole celebrity thing, and then with with that came drugs, and with drugs came experiments. And then there was a time when I kind of felt like, okay, now I'm overdoing it. And I remember Malcolm, Malcolm, because he hates anything to do with alcohol, any type of drugs, and he was like, Dexter, because he stutters. He's like, Mr. Galicia, I told you stop this drug shit, and we to have arguments all the time. He'd be like, no, you're smoking too much weed. And I know you fucking up with all kinds of other drugs, blah, 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 blah. And he was like one of the people who would always say to me, because he was my publicist. Mm. And, um, you know, other people are like, especially when you're making money, people want you to do you it. And, you know, the crazy thing about being in entertainment as well, is that I think for the first year, I didn't touch any. And then it gets to the point where you can only do so many gigs. In the night. And only, you can only drink so much free Jack Daniels mm. before, you know, when you get to the third gig, you're, 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 you're really stirring your feet. Mm. And, 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 and you know, that's kind of like how I got it. And then after a while, I just kind of realized that, yo, oh, this is, you know, like, it's kind of like the, um, what's his name, lyric? Damian Mali, From Once in a Blue Moon to Once in a Blue Sky. And that's mm. when you know that, okay, this is now, you're losing yourself. Because you see what happens is, the circle that, are, that is around you could be dangerous. And now, you start, you actually, you kind of, it's almost like you shed your skin. So your old skin, which is of the people that you know that are safe, and affect you, you discard that shit. Now you want this new, wild world where it's like, you know, it's, it's like, it's nocturnal. It's, it's all no. kinds of shit. You know what I mean? So, that's what I happens And, and I think you.
1: it applies to, it applies to any environment because, so, yeah. you know, like when I went into so I went into rehab, but when I went into rehab, I cut out certain people. But in yeah. cutting those people out, I was realizing that these people had been part of my life for like the last two years when I was getting into into drugs. So they they came with the drugs. So the minute I yeah. left the drug, it's like actually they you know under normal circumstances these people would have never really, have been, really been part of my life. Because that was <laughs> that was the only unifier, right? And and now oh. I sit and I go, there's people. Some of those people I have, haven't seen in twenty years, years. right? Yeah. In twenty years, where there are people who were there before, maybe during, and now after, those are my people because they're still a part of my life.
2: But you see what you said is it, it, that's exactly it, and it's funny because like um, you you realize that. You know, and like, you see it, in, and then I said to myself as well, um, I kind of knew, like I was very well aware what was going on, you know what I mean? It wasn't like, oh, is this happening? What's going on? Like, I knew yeah. what was I knew, I knew how I put myself in that my position. So I said to myself, you know what, this is not going to work, and and this is the problem. Then I said to myself, okay, am I going to do a boogala? And go back to, because I, I remember even with Booga, Booga struggled for a while to become completely, completely seen Because like, you know, there was a time when me and him were living in the same complex. I remember like, I'd always say, hey man, come in. He'd be like, mm, no, and he'd laugh. He'd be like, you know what? I can't. Like, I really can't, man. nigga, like, I love you and everything, but I know who's going to come later. Because he used to see the car. You know what I mean? You yeah. know, that like, we know the same people. You know what I mean? So he knew that it was not that he didn't want to be around me or whatever, but right? it was just the people who I was around. You know? And, and that's another thing. I, I knew that also it was a bit weird because some of the people who were kind of heavy into that lifestyle were the people that I had just now met in this music industry who i formed relationships with. So it's like, do I want to continue down this path of music with these people or not? And you know, a person would think, oh yeah, but it's easy. You just find new people. It's not that easy just to yeah. say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just find new people. You know what I mean? And like, it would really, literally mean cutting off people who, someone who I just met. You know? Yeah. You have to be. I wanted to. It.
1: Like, you have to exactly. be deliberate about it. They can't, it can't be a. Uh, let me do X, Y, Z, and hopefully, and and hopefully, I can drift away like that. Exactly. But I, but I do want to ask, like, did it? Was it made easier by the fact that you had something that a lot of people didn't have, which was which was an outlet that was literally a different country? I yes, mean, is, is like that, that's you the only had, thing to say like you that's had. You to say. had
2: you could leave and go to you know back to London. Yeah, you know what I tried to do, and I realized that it was becoming a bit of a problem. Um, I tried to go back to the drama. not briefly. Like, I just tried to, like, just duck out. You know, I still have my place in Joburg and whatever. I said, look, you know what? Maybe I need to... I didn't want to go as far as rehab, but I just wanted to be away from the machine. Joburg is a machine. and It's like... No, it's a machine and it's an animal as well. And if you are... And it's weird because coming from London, you'd think, hey, you're coming from London. Hey, Joburg can swallow up (laughs) anyone. You could be coming from Lesotho, Limpopo or London. It will swallow you because Joburg is like that, and you need to understand. And Joburg in the early 2000s, man, was different. And like, I think as well, at that time, like it was such a word. I can't even. I don't even know what word. It was, it was so different from anything I'd ever experienced. You know, and I had been I had experienced so much in my life, but it was a very new experience for me. And then I think that outlet it really did help because I thought to myself. To be out of this whole scene completely. So I did go to England, tried out. And I remember when I came back, um, that's when I started to work on my second album. And I remember that, that festive, I was a goofy. We went to a party. And I, I tweeted about it the other day. And I was just drinking juice. The chick was just like, Yeah, so how long have you been on ARV? Excuse me? And she's like, Yeah, You're. it's festive. You're drinking juice. Okay, you know, you, you probably got A. No big deal. There's no stigma anymore. I'm mm-hmm. <laughs> like, really? Like, I'm just drinking juice because I don't want to, you know. At first, she, she thought I had alcohol in my drink. Then I said, no. It's and it took her like 20 minutes of me having to explain why I chose not to drink. And I didn't want to say to her, do you know what? I'm not drinking because drinking triggers all kinds of shit. So, I don't want to trigger that. And I know that drink- alcohol, for me, is my gateway. I'm, I'm very happy. Doing, I'm very happy, like smoking trees or whatever, but if, if you know, with some people, if you drink alcohol, it's just a mess. So, mm. I didn't want to drink alcohol because I knew that if I drink alcohol, all of are going to be made. So, don't drink. Mm. So, you know what I mean? And then it was like, now I'm having to justify why I'm not drinking. This is hard work. So, yeah. that's yeah. the impression that you get in SA. Like, yeah. like, if you say to some, a person, like, hey, I don't want to drink, and people forget that. Some people, they don't drink because maybe they grew up in a house where their father was beating their mom. I mean, that didn't happen to me. But maybe alcohol has those triggers, you know what I mean? So It's like, people shouldn't force people to drink thinking that everybody needs to be drunk to enjoy themselves.
1: Well, look, I believe that South Africa has a collective drinking problem. Um, oh, big time. And, big time. And, and, and we see it all the time. So, I mean, I, I still drink. But after rehab, I, I became, like, I didn't drink for 10 months. And yeah. I drink for the enjoyment of what I'm drinking. So, like, I will get home, pour myself a whiskey and chill and, you know, drink that. And then when, once I'm done with it, like, I go to bed. Like, I'm not yeah. trying to finish a bottle. So, and and I very really actually drink when I'm out of the house. And wow. you find, like, it blows people's minds. But fortunately, also, I'm... Forty nine years old now, like I really don't care yeah. what you think. Like um, I actually have I actually do not care. You know, so it's it's easier it's easier to live like that, but it's taking me all of these years. Um so as we wind let's start to wind down because I think we could go on forever. Oh for sure. What I mean, what's what does your life look like now? Like what's what does your life look like now what are your priorities and and that sort of stuff?
2: I mean it's very different. Um so so okay. So basically when I came out of the scene, so because I was in prison, I'm trying to dry myself out in England and then I said, Okay, look, I've made a bit of money. Let me try and throw this into property. So I did. So I managed to get that going. And that's kinda of like what I was doing for from around two thousand and six and nine. I mean it took three years to build it because um first of all it was not not funded by the banks. Mm-hmm. So I, I got a couple of investors and a partner and I tried my first property like venture. There was like six apartments. Um after that went on to build houses, sold them. So I got into that and then it was managing property. Sure so um, it was this This is mm-hmm. in Mondana. Yeah. Okay. Modana. So like I came to England, right out of it, and then went back to Botswana and then just decided, you know what, let me just do the proper mm. So, got into that at the same time as when I was doing that. I was recording my second album, but I think by that time, I had now like crossed 30 mark. You know? I was like 30 at that point. And, you know, it's not that, look, music is never going to go away from passion. Like, yeah, it was not something that I was interested in doing like that anymore. I wanted to, and like my son was getting older. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I just wanted to do things that I felt were just more serious. And so I did that, got into that um commercial, and and I me residential the first, then commercial. And you know, I did that for a number of years. Then mm-hmm. came came back to came back to the UK again. I have a partner who, okay, I'm jumping around. So before, in between that, like I've always been doing music-related stuff. So I, I started to manage my, um, my brother's band. My brother, my brother was in a, an indie band. or Young Hops. Mm-hmm. This is in, in, in England now. So I came back to England. After I'd finished, after i got the property set up, um, came back to the mm-hmm. UK. Started messing with my brother's band. So I, I actually started a management company. I, I managed him and a couple of other artists. So I started working with a guy called Carlos Pimentel. Mm-hmm. Who is a lawyer. He's a lawyer. So he used to be at Loud Records. And he, he used to manage the Beat Nuts. Yeah. And he was DJ, Khaled, DJ Khaled's first lawyer. So we tried to do a couple of different ventures. Um, I tried to bring Buster Rhymes, tried to bring a couple of people. Uh, it was a bit difficult to get the buy-in from in Limbojana. And then, you know, there's a couple of different things that we tried to do. And then eventually, what we started to do um, most um, recently was what, what I'm doing currently now, which is a, a documentary project um, on on an athlete from Bajana called Nigel mm-hmm. Amos. Yeah. He was the favorite for the gold at Tokyo. So we're we're in the middle of wrapping up the first half of this documentary. But we you know, we're gonna do the second part of his. I've lined up a few other documentaries like I mentioned. I wanna do one on I actually wanna do one on T K Z. And I wanna do the T K Z story. Talk about them as individuals, them as a group, the impact that they had. Um, you know, I have a few more documentary projects lined up because that's the kind of direction that I wanna go in now. Um but yeah that's that's the kind of route I took. I got more into uh, the actual business because, like I said, I did economics and politics at so uni. Really, never really wanted to be a politician. I thought I would get more into the business side of it. But I actually spent my time from like maybe O six to let's say 14, around there, just in different business ventures. As you yeah. know, with business, you know, some shit works, some shit doesn't. Yeah, and you know, you gotta, you you gotta work. You have to work until you get the formula right, you know, right, and what's not working. So that's kind of like what I did, and I mean, like now presently, I'm still in the property, still in the creative world in terms of, and now in terms of production. And I think more recently, like in the last maybe two years, I've gotten into cryptocurrency. Okay. And being so that's, a that's where. Oh no, that's always been. That's always been like. So so yeah, that's my day to day. Like, um, I'm not married anymore. Divorce. But, like, my son basically came to live with me when he was 14. Okay. So But so from, from, like, maybe the age of five, between five and 14, he was not living with me. He was now. And, you know, he came over here. So he's, he's in the third year of uni now. So he's, so I've been living with him since he was 14. And then my, my daughters, they've been living with me since, since 2016. So, so yeah. I'm just like a, like, full time single dad now.
1: And, and full time taxi.
2: Oh yeah, that, referee, I mean, that's, that's acting, <laughs> chef. You know what I mean, like all kinds of things. Bodyguard. So, so yeah, like in terms of creative wise, I'm always going to be a creative. I, I, mean, I still do. Like my brother, like, like I mentioned, I used to manage his band. He, his band, um, disbanded, and he randomly got signed by Asap Rock. one night, just doing random things in England, up into this guy. He didn't even know who he was. Went to the studio. Remember, he called me, he's like, I met this guy from America from Rocky He didn't even know who he was. And like, a week later, Rocky's got him in a studio with, like, Kanye West and Kim Kardashian, and, like recording some songs from, from his album, and he knew who they were, but he didn't yeah. know who ASAP Rocky was. So, you know, even with that, like, I, I, I've always been around when people are doing creative things. You know? So, like, when my brother was doing stuff, I was like, as their manager, just in the back, you know, we were. One time we were Abbey Road they were recording stuff, so I was always there. Like you know, even when I was doing, um, even when I was not active in music, and I was just chilling, like, um, I was in people's sessions, like when when other level do joined, I was in the studio when he recorded that. In a lot of pe, in a lot of niggas' sessions, I was there. You know what I mean? I was there. I just didn't say anything on the mic. I was there. I was I was always in the mix. Cause like creativity is something that keeps me going. And it's always something that I'm always gonna be on. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thank, it's, you, thank it's, you. It's good bro.
1: it's good catching up. Like it, it it's weird. Like I guess it's weird how this this world that we live in works, right? Uh oh. because because what will happen is that you will bump into somebody or interact with somebody and then you don't actually physically see each other. So I have friends like i have people i consider friends where i'm like i've actually only met them like twice like yes, they, yeah yeah <laughs> because, because because of because of the world we're living in now you kind of you if you're at least if you're conscious of it you find a way of connecting and building and, and getting an understanding of what how every, you know, how we are each wired and what resonates exactly. and what doesn't resonate. And, and yeah, then we have conversations like this. where so it's like, we hung out for like a week.
2: Hello. <laughs> like we hung out <laughs> hey, for a know, week. You know, what's funny, like, I, I actually was going to mention that because I'm coming to, you know, like shooting this documentary has been quite difficult, mostly because of COVID. Hmm. So a lot of it has been remote. So, I actually, am, I have to come and finish off some of the interviews. So, I am actually going to be in SA. So, we need to go out for a week. I'm going to be mm-hmm. down there. I was supposed to have been there, um, I was supposed to have been there 19th of last month. Okay. But, um, I didn't because of the whole, you know, like, COVID restrictions, which is crazy. Now that they've lifted everything, I'm actually looking to come down. I'm going to be in SA. So, I'm going I'm to be there before November. But, mm-hmm. right? um, I'm going to come, I'm going to come down to, I have to finish. Um, the first part because there's just a couple more interviews that we need to do and then i'm going to start doing and actually i'd like to interview you for that like in terms of you're a guy who you, know, you i could ask you two questions about that like, in terms of like like the impact of like you know halafala and halloween for you mm. the young man like when those albums came out like how did they impact you? Because that's that's kind of like mostly what the documentary is going to be about like the mm-hmm. legacy of what they did you know so we're going to start that
1: yeah, so yeah because um, to get the three of them aligned <laughs> is is another mm-hmm. i mean I've, okay. I've i've tried to do it for a couple of things and, and I know <laughs> other guys have tried to do it for a couple of things and it's just like actually just talk to each one individually like it's like what no no I'm
2: going to do what going to do it's and I'm going to get a lot of the guys other guys who were there. Yeah. You know, guys who were there, like, not on the mic, but just in the studio. Yeah, yeah, those are yeah. the guys who were there. You know, if I ask people about, about Zwai or, 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 Puga, or any of them about each other, yeah, yeah, they're yeah. going to give me bullshit answers. Yeah. You know yeah. yeah. And, and, I, and, and I know them. But they're going to give me bullshit answers.
1: And also, they're older now. I mean, like, when they, when they do gigs, like, them doing gigs now, just, it's just, it instains me. Because, you know, you talk to one and, I remember when they when they came out of what's it, home again or come again. Um, and then Cabello, because Cabello you know, kicked the habit and is fit and healthy and everything else. And then and then like Zoe, is just like, yo man, like this dude is jumping all the time and running up and down. Like I haven't got I haven't got the lungs for it, I haven't got the legs for it. It's like, yo man, this thing is work. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I try I try to get them to when I had um so when I was at Kaya one of the things that I was trying to do there was they wanted me to do a a documentary in Kwaiya, uh, and so I looked at it because initially years ago I wanted to write a actually I actually wanted to write a book on it, and because I'm a writer, so like that's easy in my mind. But what we then decided to do was I roped in one in Zimande DJ Wandi to to work with me on the stuff. So. What we started doing was literally in the interviewing individuals. And the idea was then we could actually turn it into a series, a series like a 45 minute. Uh, we could take the audio and make it a podcast. We could take the video and, you know, do cutaways and make it, you know, make it something. And we interviewed three people, no, four people. We interviewed Stu. Uh, I was trying to get TKZ. Eventually I just interviewed Zwai. Because because why I could just go I mean our kids uh, our kids our kids were born together and are growing up together. So like our kids to him I was just like, yo man, this is what I'm doing, come through. And then I we interviewed um uh and then Wandy
0: interviewed Ishmael. The Listen to Your Footsteps podcast is produced by Zebra Culture. If you have ideas of what we can do better, people you'd like us to have a conversation with. I would just like to share a thought. You can email me on info at zebraculture.com. to check out past episodes, go to kojabuffer.com slash podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share with a friend. If you'd like to get a copy of the book, listen to your footsteps, check out kojabuffer.com slash book. There are details on the various spaces it's available at. I'd also appreciate it if you could leave a review or comment wherever you listen to your podcasts. Finally, is the Zebra Culture by Koja Buffer newsletter where, on a weekly basis, I share a curated list of articles, playlists, videos, etc. that have caught my attention. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening to the conversation as much as I enjoyed having it.